Good morning, Mount Calvary Church. Happy Easter. Please type your response in all caps. He is risen. Maybe put some exclamation points on there. This is different. This is not at all what I had imagined, our staff had imagined when we had started planning our Easter events and services many months ago. We've got big boxes downstairs of these beautiful Easter postcards, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of these cards that we had hoped and planned to pass out to our neighborhoods, to the people in our community. Melissa was well on her way to collecting over 20,000 eggs for our Easter egg hunt. The planning was in the works, and this isn't what we were thinking. This was not the plan that we laid out, I'm sure, for you. Um, As you look back about a month ago, this was not how you were expecting to spend your Easter either. Traditions have had to change. Maybe you're used to family coming into town, or maybe you're used to going out to lunch after the service. Um, You didn't have to get all dressed up this morning for church, though I'm sure there's a family out there that got all dressed up this morning. I'm, I'm sorry for that. I remember growing up, we would spend our Easter's with my grandparents in South Carolina, and I remember vividly um, what we would do as a family, the egg hunts and the services and all the fun and all the memories with the dinner. Um, And so having Easter like this is sad. It's different. It's not what we were expecting or hoping. The staff and the elders and the deacons, when we were praying at the beginning of all of this, we were praying that we'd be back in this room for Easter. We were hoping that this morning would be a big celebration with everyone back in this room, but that's not the case. And so we we do grieve. We grieve the loss of family time. We grieve the loss and the change of traditions. We grieve the time with people. We grieve missing hugs and different things that are happening right now. It is sad. But here was a headline I saw this week from the Washington Examiner, and it said, Easter and Passover are canceled. Coronavirus pandemic upends ancient traditions. One more time, Easter and Passover have been canceled. Coronavirus pandemic upends ancient traditions. So let's be really clear this morning. Easter traditions can be canceled and upended. Easter egg hunts can be upended, canceled. Dinners can be canceled and they can be upended. But our theology goes way past saying that Easter, the celebration of Easter, can be canceled. You can't cancel Easter. The word Easter in its original meaning goes way back to the Old English. And the word Easter actually means spring, dawn, east, as in the sun is rising from the east. No one canceled 
the trees beginning to flower. No one canceled the sun rising this morning. No one could stop spring flowers from starting to bloom. And in the same way, you can't cancel the seasons. Easter reminds us that you can't cancel the celebration of the historical fact that Christ rose from the grave, that he brings new life in his resurrection. And so that's what we hold on to this morning. The fact that our Easter celebration today in our houses, stuck at home, is much more like that first Easter would have been celebrated. When the women came to the disciples, locked in their rooms, overcome with fear, overcome with guilt. This first, that first Easter was not celebrated in a big room like this with a large congregation. And so for us, we remember that you can't cancel Easter, and we rewrite that headline this morning. Our headline says this, the coronavirus pandemic upends Easter traditions, but nothing, no pandemic, no government stay-at-home order, no death, nothing can cancel or change God's people from celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Nothing. That's a long headline. But that's our prayer, that's our hope, that's what grounds us today. Things are different, and it is sad, but it doesn't change our celebration today. Let's pray. Father, help us as we grieve change. We miss hugs, and we miss people, and conversations face-to-face, and dinners with others, and gathering together as a church. We miss so much. But God, we know that our celebration of Easter and what it represents, the resurrection, cannot be touched by anything. God, help us to know that, to hold on to that, to trust that this morning. That you are firm, you are alive in your son, Jesus Christ. And it is he who we celebrate this morning, regardless of where we are, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our emotions, regardless of our canceled plans. We celebrate powerfully together by the bond of the Holy Spirit, a Christ who is alive. Encourage us with that fact this morning. God, as we open up your word, we want to know you. We want to know you deeper. Encourage us. Convict us. Lead us. Speak to us. Teach us that as we live our lives and we love those who are around us, God, that we can do it in the same way the resurrected Christ has loved us. It's in his name, the living name of Jesus Christ that we pray this morning. Amen. This Easter morning, I'd like to focus on one verse. Now, that may be hard for you to believe. Um, One thought. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 
20 says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. One more time, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let this sink in. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We are living in a time where we can never say that it seems like. We can never hold on to the saying, in fact, there is so much uncertainty all around us. So much unknown. So much, we we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We're grasping for knowledge. We're grasping for facts. The questions continue to come to our minds. How long is this going to last? What's May going to be like? Is this going to affect my family? Is someone I know going to get sick? Will I ever have a graduation ceremony? What will next fall look like? And so we have these questions, we have this uncertainty, and we get to 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and we see, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Here's the truth that we'll talk about this morning. The facts of today ground us for tomorrow. The facts of today ground us for tomorrow. If there are no facts that we can cling to, there's nothing that will stabilize us in the future. Here's a fact for me today. My relationship with Ashley is an unconditional covenant made to God that we will love, we will care, and we will serve one another no matter what. That is a fact in my life. It's a fact that will ground me tomorrow. Something that I know tomorrow morning when I wake up, regardless of the situation in the world around us, I will be married to my wife Ashley and I will love and I will serve her. Facts are like life vests when you're going whitewater rafting. Now, I don't know if you've ever been whitewater rafting. It's pretty thrilling. It's pretty scary. You've got rapids of all sorts of sizes. You've got boulders. You've got a team of people in a raft working together. And it's dangerous, very dangerous. There is so much unknown about going rafting. You probably aren't going to know the guide that is steering your boat. You're probably not going to know the people that are in the boat with you. You're probably not going to know the river that you're about to float down. I remember taking Ashley rafting when we were dating. That was funny. That was fun. Funny. More funny than fun. Now it's funny. It wasn't funny then. And we went to the same rapids where the Atlanta Olympics held some of their canoeing competitions. And I remember going into this river, you're going in blind. 
I mean, you don't know what's in front of you. You just know that this river is strong enough for the Olympics. And it is unknown. Why would people go rafting? Why would I take my girlfriend rafting? Well, one of the reasons is because you have a life vest. You put the life vest on. You strap it in. You tighten it. You can test it if you want to. And it is the life vest that you put around you that grounds you, that gives you hope that I can do this. Though I don't know what's coming down the road, down the river. I don't know these rapids. I don't know my guide. I don't know what's happening. I can trust my life vest. I remember when I was in college at Cedarville University. And this lecture has stuck in my mind for many years. My Bible professor shared with our class, in a, in a very vulnerable moment, shared his doubts, his self-doubts, his spiritual doubts, his doubts of faith. And as he was sharing these doubts, this is what he said next. He said, I might doubt tomorrow. I might doubt myself. I might even doubt some of the things that I believe from time to time in in brief moments. But what he said about how he handles his doubts has never left me. He said, what do I do? I go back And I study, and I remind myself, and I relearn the historical fact of the empty tomb, of Jesus' resurrection. If this event happened, if three days later after being brutally crucified, Jesus actually rose from the grave, then I have absolutely nothing to doubt. What he's saying is, is we all are going to have doubts about tomorrow about many different things. And what he's saying is is the fact of the resurrection, the fact that it is historically proven, it's truth, can ground us, can help us as we struggle. And let's just be clear. It is facts that solidify and ground us. It's not our hearts. It's not our experiences. It's not our feelings. And so this morning, a little bit of a a different approach to maybe thinking about the resurrection, but I want to look at the historical fact. I want to look at the evidence because my hope is that wherever we are this morning with whatever doubts we have, as we consider and reflect on the facts of the empty tomb, that we will be grounded to face whatever tomorrow brings. So I want to do that by looking at three supporting facts that Jesus resurrected. Three supporting facts that Jesus was resurrected. The first fact is this. Jesus was crucified and placed in a tomb which three days later was discovered to be empty. One more time. Jesus was crucified. He was placed in a tomb three days later That same tomb was discovered to be empty. It is one thing 
for people who are sympathetic to Jesus Christ to affirm this fact. That's one thing. That's important, too. You look at the Gospels. All four Gospels affirm that Jesus died by crucifixion, that he was placed in a tomb, and even further, they affirm that he was resurrected. Peter, Paul, Hebrews make this same claim. Jesus was crucified. He was placed in a tomb, and three days later, it was empty. 1 Corinthians, which we just are reading in chapter 15, says just 80 years after the resurrection of Jesus, there's this already this creed or this formalized written belief statement about the resurrection. Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15 says. In accordance with the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. I mean, this was already written in stone for the early church. But as great as it is for people who are sympathetic to affirm something, it is even stronger evidence when someone who is not sympathetic to the cause can affirm the same thing. It's like the other day when, my, when I was questioning my two boys... The dog was wet. Jack, my youngest, Jack, did you spray the hose on the dog? No, Dad, I didn't. Truman, who is not typically sympathetic with the littlest one, said, Dad, you can believe me. Jack did not spray the dog with the hose. Well, I am more prone to believe it because I know Truman is not typically on Jack's side. I feel bad for saying that. There are many sources, many quotes and books and papers written by people who are not sympathetic to Jesus, who don't believe in who Jesus said he was, who will affirm this first supporting fact. The most famous is Josephus, the historian who was Jewish but was not sympathetic to Christ. Look at the quote that he gives us. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified, he's saying Jesus was actually crucified. Tacitus, who was a Roman senator who had no sympathy for Christians, he hated Christians, says this, Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and afflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Lucian, the Greek poet, another man who was not sympathetic to the cause of Christ says, the Christians you know worship a man to this day. The distinguished distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on their account. Here's what I'm saying. Historically, historians are not going to deny the fact that Jesus was crucified. I mean, it's a fact. A man named Jesus, who represented a large group of people, was put on a cross. 
But that's not the only fact that's affirmed by people who aren't um, sympathetic to the cause of Christ. The other fact that is part of this supporting fact, number one, is that the tomb was empty. Never do you see an argument made in the New Testament or in the early writings of the church that there was an argument from the Roman government or through or the unsympathetic Jewish opponents, that they had found Jesus' body. Never. In fact, they assume it to be true. The tomb is empty. And then from there, what they do is they create all sorts of creative plan Bs for the story, for the empty tomb. But it is assumed by those who do not like Jesus and do not like his followers, that the tomb was empty. And so what they do is they try to make explanations for it. There's many different theories that have been thrown out from the unbelieving historical community. Jesus's body was stolen by the disciples. Matthew tells us that this is going to be the story that's going to be passed on Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. That the disciples snuck in at night. They pushed the rock away as much as they could. The skinniest of the disciples snuck through probably Peter. He got through the stone. He got Jesus' body. He snuck out of the tomb with Jesus' body. They got rid of the evidence. They made up a story so that this new faith wouldn't die. It was the best they could do. The other most famous story is that Jesus never really died. The swoon theory. Jesus merely swooned. He was beaten up really good. But he was able to play dead for long enough time that the Roman centurions believed he was dead. They took him off the cross. They wrapped him up as if he were dead. They put him in the tomb. And Jesus spends a few days getting better healing from the wounds. And after three days, he, he pushes past the rock, the stone. He sneaks out and he finds the disciples. He's able to convince the disciples. So the wounds would have been obvious. The fact that he was stabbed with a spear under his ribcage would not have healed in three days. But somehow, even though the wounds were blatantly obvious. He was able to convince the disciples that he was the resurrected Jesus, not the recovering Jesus. He was able to trick them and say, I am the prince of life, resurrected, though I am clearly still hurting from what happened to me on the cross. And so the theories abound but not many of them make a strong case. Not many of them are believable. Not many of them are sound. But this is the first supporting fact. Jesus was crucified. The tomb was empty. How do you explain it? I believe that there is a more sound and reasonable way to explain the empty tomb. And we're getting there. The second supporting fact. Multiple testimonies by a variety of witnesses are given of an encounter with resurrected, the resurrected Christ. Now, again, this is just a fact. Many people 
said that they had a conversation with the resurrected Christ. Many people said, I saw him, I talked to him, I ate with him, I touched him, I heard from him. Many. And what, when you're trying to prove an event, it is helpful to have multiple testimonies from multiple people, again, who aren't necessarily sympathetic to the movement, to the fact. So when we had our car accident a couple months ago, several months ago, okay, the the truck pulled out in front of us, right in front of us, and we slammed the truck. Well, the first thing the driver says to me is that I had my my, my turning light on, my blinker, and that I was slowing down, and she was insinuating that this car accident was my fault. Well, thankfully, there were two cars behind this truck. And when the police got there and they're listening to, I didn't have my turn light on. She's not, it's not truthful what she is saying. I was just driving through the intersection, but the police get there. What do they do? They interview different people who saw the accident. Two cars behind the truck. I mean, I was nervous. But here's what's important. Here is a uh, disconnected, to me, witness to what has happened. Now, if the person behind the truck was my brother, okay, that testimony would not be as powerful as someone who was unconnected to me. And this is the point of this second supporting fact. There were multiple independent sources who say, I saw Jesus resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15, a passage we've been kind of in and out of this morning, talks about this. Verses 3 through 6. We'll put that on the screen. For I deliver to you as a first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I like what Paul's doing here. He's saying, hey, if you don't believe me for what I'm telling you, how about you go talk to someone who saw Jesus? It's not just four eyewitnesses like in our car accident. 500 witnesses who have testimony that they saw and interacted with a resurrected Christ. Now, how does the historical community go up against this? Well, they were hallucinating. The disciples were hallucinating. The group was hallucinating, which again, this doesn't have much ground to it, not much reason to it. You don't hallucinate something you're not expecting, right? Like right now, if I was to be hallucinating, I'd be hallucinating for things I'm hopeful for, for baseball, for shoe fly pie, for a church full of people. That's not in that order. Church full of people first, uh, probably shoe fly pie second, then baseball. That's what I'm thinking about. That's what I want. I'm not going to hallucinate for something I'm not expecting. The disciples clearly were not expecting a resurrected Christ. They weren't thinking that this was about to happen. And all of a sudden, they have this this image, this picture, this dream of Jesus resurrected. That's not how hallucinations work. And even more than that, 
groups of people don't have hallucinations together. Big groups of people don't. That's not how it works. And even more than that, people who were not sympathetic to Jesus Christ saw the resurrected Jesus. His brother, James, who was skeptical, had interaction with resurrected Jesus. Paul, formerly Saul, saw the resurrected Jesus. Again, people who you would not expect to see Jesus had testimony that they interacted with him. Lastly, supporting fact number three. The disciples believed that the resurrected Jesus appeared to them. The disciples believed that the resurrected Jesus appeared to them. How they lived and how they died proves that. Okay, just think about this with me for just a moment. Something happened to the disciples. Something changed the disciples. I mean, anyone who studies, whether you are a believer or you are an unbeliever, something, it is clear that something radical happened to the men that were following Jesus. Something utter and complete happened. Ashley and I have been watching this show called The Chosen, and it's a show that is, it's a really fascinating show. It's one of the first multi-season series on the life of Jesus. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to give a full picture of the life of Jesus. And so what they have to do is they have to extrapolate from the text what else was happening to these people around them. And so what what the show does is it teaches you, it shows you through this long series, the backstories of the characters we have in the Bible. Now, we know a little bit about Mary. We know a little bit about Nicodemus. But this show is really trying to broaden by giving you a a guess of what could have been happening. It's a really fascinating, interesting, thought-provoking show. Well, one of the things that I've kind of been thinking about as I've been watching this show is how incompetent the disciples were. How sinful the disciples were. How full of doubt the disciples were. Yet something changed them. And we would argue the resurrected Christ changed them. That's our argument. But just one very brief example. Peter. I mean, Peter, you know Peter, made mistake after mistake after mistake. In Matthew 16, when Jesus is preaching on his death and his resurrection, what does Peter say? Never. And what what does Jesus call Peter? You're Satan right now. You're acting like Satan. And then the final, the last supper, the night before the crucifixion, when, when Peter in his pride says, I'm not denying you. I am with you, Jesus. And in just this stark, very bold proclamation, 20 verses later in Matthew, in Matthew 26, He begins to invoke a curse on himself. He's denied Jesus. It describes the disciples. Again, it's just 20 verses later, after they pledged their faithfulness to Jesus, it says this. The disciples, Matthew 26, 56. The disciples left him 
and fled. I mean, what happened? Then all of a sudden, Jesus is resurrected. You get to Pentecost, and now you look at what Peter's doing. And it's so starkly different. Peter stands up to preach in Acts 2. I think we have this on the screen. Listen to this to these bold words. See if, you hit, see if you can sense any hint of doubt in these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you, you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter, this same Peter, is boldly saying, you crucified Jesus, and he's now resurrected. There's another scene, and we we won't have time to look at it, but Acts 4, 5 through 12, Jesus is in front of the same men that we talked about on Friday night. Caiaphas and Annas, and he is being put on trial for what he's doing. And Peter's response is astounding because he doesn't back down. What happened to Peter? What happened to the disciples? We would argue that the resurrected Jesus had a supernatural 180 change on his life. Not just the disciples. Okay, as you just think about the movement of the early church, how can we explain the force, the love, the compassion of the early church? How can we explain it? The compassion, we talked about Acts 2 earlier, several months ago, about how people are generously sharing everything they had with others who had needs because they love them. Or think about the courage and the conviction of the early church, of the disciples and the apostles. I mean, they left everything they knew, everything they knew, their vocation and their family, and they left it so they could proclaim the message of the resurrected Christ all over the world. Unprecedented courage and conviction I mean, look at how these first leaders of the church died. Crucified and beheaded. Speared to death. Dragged to death. Every one of them died for something that they truly believed in. That they knew was truth. Look at the early church. As they're thrown into the arena. As they're sent to the lions. As they're sent to be killed. The early church stood firm. Something was happening. And there's a quote from a historian that tries to explain what was happening. And I I thought I'd read it here. It says from Kenneth Scott Latourette. It says, the more one examines the factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. Listen to how, he, how close he gets. It's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unparalleled in history, without which the future course of the religion is inexplicable. 
He doesn't want to say it. He doesn't want to explain it in the supernatural. Instead, it was a vast release of energy. He doesn't want to be laughed at. But he gets close. What would we say? What is that vast release of energy that transformed the disciples and set off the early church to follow Jesus's great commission? We would say it was the resurrected Jesus Christ. Fact, in fact, the tomb was empty. In fact, multiple hundreds of people saw it. They testified to it as I witnessed both people who were sympathetic to it and some that were opposed to it. In fact, lives were changed. The church was started. The mission of God spread in an unprecedented way. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15.20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so for us this morning, this is truth. It happened. We can put that on like a life vest. Tomorrow we can be grounded because we know for certain that Jesus historically has raised from the dead. But here's the truth this morning. It's not just about facts. It's not just about understanding these facts. The Bible talks about faith. And there are people here that are listening right now who you may be aware of the facts, but you've never had the faith to say that I believe that Jesus did this for me. Paul, I like how Paul says it in Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your eternal destiny changes. The moment, not just understanding the facts, But when you believe that Jesus was crucified for your sin and for your mistakes and for your issues, but that he was resurrected to also at the same time give you new life, your eternal destiny changes the second you believe that and you trust that. And if you're here or there and you're thinking, I'm not sure that I have put my faith that Jesus has done all this for me today. In your homes, right now is the time to pray and to place your faith in the resurrected Christ. If that's you, pray right now as I pray, claiming your belief in these truths. Let's pray together. Father, you came into this world to give us a relationship with you. Yet, we have gone our own way. We have decided to do life the way we want to do it. It is sinful, God. And we have walked away from you. But thank you, God, for coming, for sending your son to live 
to die, to be resurrected, that you might restore this relationship with us. This morning, God, as people pray all over the place, God, I pray that you would work in hearts and lives. And if there is someone who maybe understands the facts but never have put their faith um, in you, God, I pray that you would work in a powerful way, that they would place their faith in you. And for, for those who are following you, for those who know you and trust you, God, I pray that we would recognize the stability that we have no matter what tomorrow brings because of the fact that your son, Jesus Christ, has been resurrected. Ground us in that truth. In your name we pray. Amen.